Welcome to EMS Cast, where we provide high-level education for you, the providers on the streets. I'm Matt Mendez. And I'm Ross Orpit. Before we get into today's episode, we wanted to ask for your help. If you enjoy listening to the podcast and feel like listening is beneficial to your learning and practice of medicine, then we would ask you would tell just one friend that you think hasn't heard of us, but would similarly enjoy the podcast. We've been experiencing some pretty phenomenal growth recently, and we're really excited for what's to come next year. Speaking of growth, we have really exciting news. Starting January 1st, we're going to be stepping it up and releasing two episodes a month. We'll have an episode for you on the 1st and 15th of every month. And in preparation for this, December's episode is going to air earlier than planned. So look for the next episode to drop on December 15th. Or you know what? Just hit that subscribe button. That way it'll automatically show up in your feed. Finally, check us out on Twitter and Instagram. We're posting stuff every week to give you more in-depth information about the topics we cover. All right, that's enough housekeeping. Let's get to today's episode. Ross, it looks like you have us slated to talk about asthma today, specifically really, really sick asthmatics and how to best take care of them. What made you want to talk about this? Yeah, so the reason I wanted to talk about asthma is because, honestly, the pathophysiology differs from that of our other respiratory distress diseases. Because of this, there are some kind of unique challenges to approaching treatment in the sick asthmatic. In fact, a sick asthmatic is honestly one of the scariest patients for me. They're often relatively young, and if our usual treatments don't work, you as the provider get stuck in a really hard place and have to make some some hard decisions. Thankfully today, with better access to healthcare and increasing use of the asthma controller medications, the super sick asthmatic patient is pretty rare. So when we do see these patients, most commonly it's because they've run out of their meds or they've simply been non-compliant with their medications or the more scary scenario where they're using their meds, but they're not helping. Yeah, I, uh, I think asthma is one of my favorite things to take care of, believe it or not. And this comes from being in emergency medicine for a long time and you you can get really jaded, but I always reoriented myself with asthma because they're usually young people and they have their whole life ahead of them and we can fix them. So I always thought it was super, super gratifying to meet someone on the verge of death and dying from this terrible respiratory disease to even 20 minutes after your treatment, they can feel 100% better and go do something with their life, like be president or um, make a meaningful change in other people's lives. I I think this is one of those cool diseases where we can see the results of our work and truly fix someone and, and give them their life back. Yeah, this is a disease where our treatments have a pretty dramatic effect. And just like you said, this is a, a young, healthy patient who truly is at risk of dying, if not for the medications that you you can administer to them. So how do you think about this? What do you want to get across to the EMTs and medics out there? 
So when I think about asthma, I think there, there are really five main principles that I want to get across. Number one, asthma is an exhalation problem, not an inhalation problem. Number two, bronchodilators are the mainstay of treatment. Number three, epi, epinephrine is a potent bronchodilator and should be considered in life-threatening asthma. Number four, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation can be used as an attempt to temporize and avoid intubation or to assist in delivery of medications. And then number five, intubation almost always makes things worse and should only be performed if absolutely necessary. All right, well, let's, let's take a look at each of these one at a time. Starting with the pathophysiology, why is it important to understand that asthma is an exhalation problem and not an inhalation problem? And is it fair to say that asthma is a CO2 problem and not an oxygen problem? Yeah, so this very point is what truly helps us to understand why asthma can be so difficult to treat and why we can't approach it like we do any other respiratory disease process. I don't know about you, but when I was in paramedic school, we spent a lot of time talking about the differences in treatment between COPD and CHF, but not the differences between these diseases and asthma. But these are problems mainly of inhalation. And what I mean is that with these diseases and with respiratory distress from something like pneumonia, we can use positive pressure to drive air in and help improve oxygenation, like you said. But in asthma, it's so important to understand they don't have problem getting air in. They don't have problem getting that oxygen in. They have problem getting air out. They have problem getting that CO2 out. So we can force more air into their lungs, no problem. But then they still can't get that air you forced in out. And this leads to overinflating their lungs by a process that we refer to as air trapping. So picture blowing up an air mattress by mouth. As that air mattress becomes more full, it becomes more difficult on your end to blow that air in past the air that's already been trapped in there. And then at some point, so much air gets trapped in there that you, you can't force any more fresh air in past that trapped air. It just goes into the valve and comes right back out. You feel that trapped air pushing back against you as you try to get it past the valve. This is what we call dead space ventilation. So dead space ventilation is the air exchange between just the trachea and the bronchi. This is referred to as the dead space because there's no gas exchange. There's no oxygen CO2 exchange in these areas. In order for oxygen to be delivered to the blood and CO2 to be taken out from the blood, it must make it to the alveoli. But the alveoli becomes so overdistended with air trapped that air can't get out and it can't let any new inspired air in. Now, you might be saying, Ross, you, you said this was a problem with getting air out, but you certainly seem to be talking a lot about how this exhalation problem causes difficulty getting air into the alveoli. Yes, this is correct, but, but the fix for this is different. We have to first figure out how to exhale that trapped old air before we can get that new air in. And this is what makes asthma so challenging to treat because sure, if we really want to, we can, we can force more air in. We can further over distend those alveoli by increasing our driving pressure of inspiration. And this is what we do when we put somebody on positive pressure ventilation like CPAP or, or worse when we intubate them. 
And for diseases like CHF and COPD, even pneumonia, this often works great. But in the case of asthma, where they still can't get that air out, we just worsened our problem by increasing the overdistension and air trapping that's occurred within the alveoli. So if we go back to our, our air mattress example, with enough pressure, sure, we can force more air in, but at some point, the pressure inside the air mattress is going to be too much for the walls to withstand, and a hole will pop to relieve that pressure. And, and now if we go back to the lungs, when this happens, we've just created a pneumothorax. And now not only do we have the pressure from air trapped in each individual alveoli to deal with, but now we have the pressure from the building pneumothorax pushing down on the lungs from the outside to deal with. We've just dramatically worsened our problems. So if the fix is to start getting air out, how do we do that? This brings us to principle number two. The mainstay of treatment is bronchodilators. Beta agonists such as albuterol work through beta-2 receptors, which are found in the lungs, leading to bronchodilation. As we open up the bronchioles and reverse that asthmatic process, we can allow for that air to escape. Now, even though albuterol acts primarily through beta-2 receptor, it does have some effect on beta-1 in the heart and so can cause some transient tachycardia. Although I would say I see this cause tachycardia more commonly in the mild asthmatic. The sick asthmatic often already comes in tacky in the 160s. And if I can improve that patient's bronchospasm and thus in turn improve their gas exchange and oxygenation, this will usually decrease the stress on the heart and so will often lead to actually a decrease in their heart rate as they improve. So albuterol, more albuterol, and then even more albuterol seems to be the answer. Are there any other medications we should reach for? Yeah, you got it right. Albuterol and more albuterol. But we can talk about some other Hail Mary smooth muscle relaxers we might try, but, but truly nothing is as effective at bronchodilation than beta agonists. And these should be our primary focus of treatment. That being said, albuterol isn't our only beta agonist. So epi, epinephrine, is a potent non-selective beta agonist, meaning it non-selectively activates the beta-2 receptors in your lungs as well as the beta-1 receptors in your heart. And this makes it a potent bronchodilator. Now, epi being as potent and non-selective as it is means it has more adverse effects mainly tachycardia, which can lead to an increase in myocardial oxygen demand. So we won't reach for it in the mild to moderate asthma exacerbations, but in the life-threatening, super sick asthmatic, we should absolutely reach for this as it can be life-saving. Epi has its advantages not only for its speed of onset and potency, but also because it doesn't rely on inhalation for delivery. You can imagine in a life-threatening exacerbation, the air trapping and bronchospasm may be so severe that delivery of albuterol to the lower airways may be impaired. So by bypassing that with an intramuscular medication, this can be beneficial to help us treat this. So what dose of intramuscular epinephrine do you use for severe asthma? The dosing is going to, for this is going to be very similar to your anaphylactic dosing. You'll give it uh, intramuscularly at a dose of 0.3 to 0.5 milligrams for an adult or 0.15 milligrams for peds. And you can repeat this after five minutes as needed. Are there any other intramuscular medications out there that might help us with these sick asthmatics? 
When it comes to IM meds, Epi is what you're probably most likely going to use pre-hospitally. But in the emergency department, we stock and carry a medication called terbutaline. Terbutaline is a ver- is very similar to Epi and similarly has the advantage of being a more beta two selective with less effects on beta one. And so it doesn't have as much of the undesirable effects on heart rate and blood pressure that Epi has. Well, if that's the case, why don't you think it's stocked on ambulances? I've never seen it on an, on an EMS rig. So what's the deal there? Yeah, this honestly just comes down to practicality. So as we discussed, life-threatening asthma is super rare anymore, and and epi works great if used for the right patient. You're already carrying epinephrine for anaphylaxis. You don't really use terbutaline for anything other than the severe asthmatic. So rather than spend a lot of money to stock a med that you rarely use and will have to constantly replace due to expiration, just use what you got. Okay. So we've talked about medications and specifically beta agonist bronchodilators are the mainstay of therapy. You mentioned how things like positive pressure can make it worse. What if your medications are failing to improve the patient and the patient still looks terrible, like they need to be intubated and are even about to die? In this instance, you probably, A, need more meds. More albuterol? Exactly, more albuterol. Or B, you need a different route of delivery that doesn't rely on the respiratory system, i.e. intramuscular epi. Or C, you need to buy more time for the medications to start working. Well, how, how can I buy more time? This is where principle four comes in. We've talked about the dangers of positive pressure and asthma, and and it's for this reason that historically CPAP and BiPAP have been considered ineffective and, and don't try it for asthma. But this is the instance where you may actually reach for it as a means of of either improving your medication delivery or buying time for medications to start working, and maybe as a last-ditch effort to avoid intubation. Principle 5, which we'll get to, says that intubation is almost always going to make things worse and should be avoided unless absolutely necessary. So if we're trying to avoid intubation, we can use CPAP or BiPAP to decrease the patient's work to help prevent them from tiring out and hopefully provide us more time for the medications to start working. In addition, the non-invasive positive pressure may help facilitate delivery of our albuterol deeper into the lower airways. Yes, I have put countless amounts of people on BiPAP with continuous albuterol through the BiPAP and have honestly never had a complication uh, and have never had to intubate any of them. So I'm a big fan of this. Uh, What if that doesn't work though? What if this CPAP or BiPAP doesn't get them to the point of turning around and they do need to be intubated? So I see you backing me up into a corner here now, but I'll say it again. Principle five is intubation almost always makes things worse and thus should be avoided unless absolutely necessary. But as you know, and as you're getting at, sometimes we don't get a choice to avoid the things we don't really want to do. And the reasons that push you to have to intubate these patients most commonly include inadequate respiration, secondary to respiratory muscle fatigue, or failure to oxygenate despite the measures we discussed before. So if one of these occurs, you may be forced to intubate. 
but I'm I'm going to kick this back your way because this is a very physiologically difficult airway, very scary. And since you just finished a series for us on the physiologically difficult airway, why don't why don't you remind us some of the principles we need to keep in mind before we try to intubate a patient like this? Okay, so the resuscitate before you intubate principle here is that if you're at the point where you're talking about intubation, this patient should have already received a ton of albuterol intramuscular epinephrine, depending on your protocols, maybe magnesium through the IV. And at that point, none of that worked. They're getting worse, not better. You've put them on CPAP or BiPAP, or you're assisting them with a BVM with a PEEP valve on it. And again, none of that's working. So you're at the point where you've had to take their airway. I think that all of these airways should be an RSI airway in the field which means inducing them with a medication and then using a paralytic if your protocols allow for it. If you have the choice, my personal preference is high-dose ketamine and high-dose rocuronium for everyone, which for me is a dose of about 1.5 milligrams per kilogram for each, which is easy to remember and quickly given should result in pretty rapid induction and paralysis. And then at that point, you intubate them with the method that you are fastest at. So if your system has video intubation, then that's probably what most people are going to be fastest at in terms of time to tube between the cords. If you don't have video intubation and you're a direct laryngoscopy only system, then that's all you have. You don't really have a choice. I will personally try to avoid using a bougie in these patients because I think the time it takes to railroad a tube over a bougie is, does matter in these cases. So I do a styleted tube, pull the stylet out and start bagging them. But there's really no evidence to support that. That's more just something I do based on my own personal preference, and I'm not even sure if that's the right answer. Finally, once you do have them intubated, you are going to have to, if you have a ventilator, manage that in a very specific way or bag them in a very specific way. And it's it's completely different than essentially every other disease process that you put on a ventilator. Yeah, so... The key that you were getting at there is you really want to choose the method which is going to give you the highest first path success and the highest chance of intubating this patient as quickly as possible. But remember, one of my favorite sayings is slow is smooth and smooth is fast. So before you do anything, take your own big deep breath and remain calm. Now, just as you alluded to, placing this patient on the vent or when you start bagging this patient, you need to remember that this is a problem of exhalation. And so we're going to want to allow ample time for that patient to exhale as we're putting them on the vent or, or bagging them. We, we often talk about this as an I to E time. So the ratio of inspiration to expiration, and you're essentially going to want this to be somewhere in the neighborhood of like one to five. So for you know, if, if you bag them on the inspiration part, you want to do that over one second and then let them exhale for five seconds. Because again, the, the problem here is that you want them to completely exhale. Sometimes you'll even see described where people will intubate them and then uh, they will squeeze both sides of their chest as hard as they can to try and push out as much air as possible from like a mechanical standpoint by literally having a provider squeeze both sides of their chest to just blow out as much air as they can before they start bagging again. 
And one thing you're going to notice when you're bagging this patient is that they're going to be very difficult to bag. And that is because of all that air trapped in there. Just as our air mattress analogy, as you're trying to force air in, you're going to feel that air pushing back against you. And this means you're going to need more driving pressure in order to force that air in. And a real risk of this is creating a pneumothorax. And so we should talk about this complication for a second. So the vast majority of the time this occurs, it's because we added positive pressure to the system, just like I said. But it can rarely occur in the spontaneously breathing patient too, so you do need to be on the lookout for it. Signs that this may have just occurred are a sudden increase in work of breathing, a sudden decrease in oxygen saturations, hypotension, tracheal deviation, or you may even feel crepitus to the chest wall or neck from sub-Q air on the side that this is occurring. You can diagnose this by recognizing those signs and symptoms just mentioned combined with absent or decreased breath sounds unilaterally. This is treated just like any other tension pneumothorax with needle decompression, but I will say these are very complicated patients who have multiple reasons to have an increased work of breathing and decreased oxygen saturations outside of a pneumothorax. So if you think this may have happened and you're considering decompression, it may be worth a phone call to your medical control just to discuss what you're seeing and get another mind on the case as a check to make sure you're not missing something. Okay, Ross. So say you're taking care of an asthmatic and they undergo cardiac arrest. Do you automatically vent the chest bilaterally, whether with a needle um, or some other method? But But my question is, are you just every time going to decompress their chest? I don't. Some people may teach this. And honestly, I don't know if there's a a right or wrong answer. At this point, it's all last, you know, it's all Hail Mary attempts because this, if somebody's this sick and has arrested, your chances of getting them back is very, very slim. That being said, I I treat it just like any other cardiac arrest. I give my ACLS medications. I continue that albuterol through the ET tube. And then with regards to whether or not I decompress or not, I use my physical exam and my gestalt to kind of make that decision. All right. Can you give us a summary of the five principles that you mentioned for the sick asthmatic? Yes. So principle number one. Asthma is an exhalation problem, not an inhalation problem. So this means principle number two, bronchodilators are going to be your mainstay of treatment, albuterol and more albuterol. And principle number three, don't forget, epi is also a potent bronchodilator, and it should be considered in the life-threatening asthmatic patient. Principle number four, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation can be used as an attempt to temporize and avoid intubation and maybe assist in delivering your medications. And then finally, principle number five, intubation almost always makes things worse and should be avoided unless it is absolutely necessary. Go ahead.